This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Dear listeners, thank you for choosing this podcast again and for joining me in my pursuit of being a woman of intention, intentionally learning about some of the world's greatest pain and deepest hope. I wonder as you listen to my conversation today, what stirs in you regarding that intersection? As you think of your own passion, have you thought about what my friend Dan Allender developed in his book, To Be Told? That when we apply our passion to a problem and a people and a place, then we find our purpose. What might that be for you? What might that be for your kids? My guest today has lived an incredible and crazy life of passion and purpose. Deborah Murky and her husband, Al, were foster parents for 18 years. Deborah has also served as the director of Women's and Children's Ministries of the Central Wyoming Rescue Mission, the executive director of a Christian Crisis Pregnancy and Counseling Center, a jail guard, a jail chaplain, and she and her husband now reside in Casper, Wyoming with six children and seven grandchildren. I don't mean they live in the same house. I just mean they live in Wyoming. Her new book, Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace, is a true story of one sibling set that was prematurely returned to mom and how one of the children was murdered. It's the story of how Deborah found, through God's help, the ability to love that mother and reestablish a beautiful, redemptive relationship with her. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Deborah Murky. Deborah, welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Beth. It's really, really exciting to be here with you. Well, I have just given a little introduction to you, um, about you, to my listeners, and uh, filled in just a little bit of your life. You have lived quite a life, but I would love for you to start us off by just telling us a little bit about present day, Deborah. Well, present day has been very challenging for our family. We have uh, had a, a five-year-old granddaughter who just recently passed away a few weeks ago from cancer. She uh, lost her battle with leukemia. So it's been a real hardship on our family, and we're, we're wrestling with that right now. So we're continuing to work and to live life, and um, but we're all really in, in a, a grieving place right now. So life's been a little bit of a struggle as we move forward. I am so sorry to hear that. 
that kind of loss is, it's just, it's not something that you will get through anytime soon, I'm no, sure. No, but we have each other and we have a lot of support in our family. Yes, but I'm sure that feels confusing in the midst of launching your book, the, the both and of joy and celebration and deep sorrow. You know, it absolutely does. It's, um, it all came at around the same time, um, obviously. And so where we are grieving uh, one situation, yet we're trusting God for that. Um, he is a good God, and He is ultimately in control. And, and uh, we know that He's going to carry us through. Um, on the other hand, with the book, it is very exciting. And it was another very hard story and uh, situation to share and to live through. And yet, in one sense, the timing was pretty amazing because it was also a reminder of what God has brought us through. And he will continue to in this story, this next one. Hmm. That's an, a great perspective that you already have, you know, codified, articulated in, in words now, in print, a story of God's faith to yes. you and your family to hold on to. So that is actually, I could see the gift in that timing. I but it, you're, mm-hmm. yeah, but you're right. What, what a difficult story you tell in your book, Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace. And I don't want to give away the whole book, um, but I mean, in some ways, you give it away in the title. There, there is some heavy part of, of the book, I mean, of the story. And it was challenging to me. I, I have some of my closest friends have been foster parents, and many of them have adopted those foster kids. And uh, your story of you know being a foster parent to close to 200 children, is what was the total number that you and your husband fostered? Over 140 children. Okay. Um, throughout how many years were you foster parents? Just about 18 years. Okay. Uh, that's just amazing. Amazing. And I'm sure you've seen the whole spectrum of, of joy and pain, but there was one sibling set that changed your lives. Yes. And so can you tell us a little bit about the Bauer children? Well, we were, had been foster parents probably around 14 years at that point. And we had moved into a house on 10 acres, a larger house, because we had five children of our own. Two were grown and one was in the military, one was in college. But we wanted to be able to have a larger home so that we could take families and keep them together. And um, and so we did have some uh, when we moved there, families of three or four. And this particular family, we ended up with five of the children. And the uh, four-day-old infant was the first that came to us. And then slowly the other siblings, over about a week's time, came to our home. And we ended up with all five of them for almost a year. And tell us a little bit about um, just what ended up happening with those children. Well, we had realized pretty early on that uh, especially one of the the children, a little four-year-old, was a targeted child uh, for mom. She was a a targeted child of of abuse and just harshness and coldness. And I never really understood why. And one thing I've always liked to do if the parent would allow me to, and that is when we had a foster child, a lot of times it was single moms that were involved. And I would try to befriend that single mother when I could to let her know I was on her side and I wanted to be a support to her. You know, I, I was not one of the bad guys, you know, the police or the caseworker. I wanted to come, be able to come alongside of her. 
So at one point, this the mother of this child or of these five children uh, allowed me to take her to lunch or to meet with her a few times and visit. And I asked her about that. I said, you seem to really have a problem with this one child. And I asked her why. And she just said that with all of her children, um, there were about three or four different daddies involved. And um, there was conflict between two of those dads. One was very jealous of one of the other ones. And and this little child happened to be born to the wrong dad. And so uh, where the the man that she was involved with uh, was rather a rough and kind of a harsh guy, he he treated this child poorly and shunned her. And so for the mother to keep relationship with the man, she did the same. And um, she said that she she knew that that didn't seem really fair, but she had to do that in order to keep the peace. Well, again, it's it's difficult to to pursue the story and not give away the whole book. Um, but the children ended up being returned to their mom and things went very poorly from there. And I, I think my inju- the injustice um, bent or the justice bent in me, the, the, the part that made me so angry on your behalf, on the children's behalf, was when it was clearly obvious that the mom was not ready to receive all five kids back into her home. And the judge just ordered it to be so. And there was no discussion and no time to even put a a safety plan into place. And you don't even go into this in the book. And yet it was the part that infuriated me the most. Um, can you can you just flesh that out for us a little bit more? And I guess I'm, what I'm curious about is, how did you handle that? How did you walk through something that felt so wrong and so um, unjust, and yet it was out of your control? How did you handle that? And then practically, how did you handle it? With it? Was there any further conversation with that judge? Well, that was a, a very, very difficult um, part of this story because, it, you know, just our, our history of dealing with caseworkers and children going home, there was always a plan put into place. There was a plan for the uh, the parents or parent, you know, of those children. They had to go to some classes and they, they really had a, a kind of a list of things that they had to accomplish before the courts would allow their children to be returned home and they had to be able to prove that to them. So I was very used to that. I was used to setting up a plan, working with a caseworker, um, and sometimes working with a parent on that plan. And usually that plan, depending on the circumstance, could have been over maybe two or three months, could have been six months or even longer. And the plan was written up and I did sit down with the caseworker and the mother in this case and, and we looked at a six month plan. And it all felt very right. We were all in agreement and things were great. And within just a few short days after that, uh, when the caseworker said she was going to present it to the judge, that this was the plan and they would move forward and have him sign off on it, she went to present the plan and sat outside the the, uh, judge's um, office there and then was informed that he would not be seeing her because he uh, was ordering the children all to be returned home that day. And I do not know how much that caseworker knew. She said she really knew nothing. She didn't understand why. There was given no reason to her at that time. There were some attorneys involved. I, I didn't know why those attorneys were involved or what the conversation looked like with the judge. But I was just in shock. And at first I, I was shocked, but I still thought, no, 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 they don't understand. We'll work this out. Let's let's have this conversation. And 
surely this judge will see that uh, this mother's not ready and these children aren't ready and, um, and, and he will reverse that. But when the caseworker said, no, he is not reversing that and you need to return these children to the home today, um, then I went into a panic mode. And I was very panicked for the one child because I knew that child was going to be put in harm's way. And I truly wrestled with it to a point where this little girl, she clung to me crying, sobbing, begging me not to take her. And I called the caseworker again, begging, pleading for um, this one child to not be returned. Let the other four, but not this one until we could work out a plan. And the caseworker just informed me I had no choice. I had no, uh, no legal right or authority to uh, detain this child from going home. And I could be brought up in charges if I did so. So I was, uh, it was one of those times I had absolutely no control. The, the law was not on my side. And even if the caseworker was, the law uh, was not supporting her either. It was one of the most difficult things I think I've had to do in my life was return that child knowing that she could be harmed um, seriously. Right. And so how did you even make it through the the process of packing up their things and taking them to their mom's house and even returning that night without them? How did you make it through that? The only way to really say that I made it through was was totally through prayer. I of course, I argued with the Lord. I, I, I asked him many times, please, you know, uh, talk to this judge. <laughs> you know, talk to this judge, do something, intervene. I knew I had to keep moving forward. We, the children, some of the children were happy to return home and helped pack. But the uh, one child, targeted child, um, just stood in the corner and cried. And I just tried to to you know, hold back and not bring them as long as I could, even though by end of day I needed to do so. And so when I am um, driving to the home to bring the, the children there, the, the little one that's that I was so fearful for, she was so quiet. She just cried and she just froze up and shut down. And when I had to bring her into the house, um, the other children went out in the backyard to begin to play. The mother seemed happy but overwhelmed. And then the uh, little girl that that I was just struggling with returning her just went and sat on the couch with just a petrified look on her face. And I was fighting my own emotions, my own tears, and the whole time just praying and just asking God to intervene. And when I saw that there was not going to be an intervention, at least during that time that I had to drop off the children, I uh, had a few few seconds there to go over to the child on the couch when her mother was not around and just remind her, I said to her, I said, you know, you, I know you cannot trust big people because big people have failed you, but you can always trust Jesus. So when you need, you cry out to him. And those were the last words that I had opportunity to share with her. And then I had to leave the home. And Deborah, did you see her again? I saw her one time at a Walmart with her mother uh, about a week or two after and she looked horrible. The other children all looked wonderful. This mother did keep her children very, very uh, clean and, and well dressed, and and uh, her their hair neat. But this child did not did not fit in with the family at that point. The mother obviously was not caring for her. She was inside uh, one of the carts, 
and um, by herself with even the smaller children walking alongside the cart. She looked as if she were hurt. She had a very panicked look on her face. She looked up at me for a second. And when I spoke to her, she didn't speak to me. I'm sure she was afraid to. And that was the last time I saw her. I did call social services to say that was one of my first phone calls to them that something was very, very wrong mm-hmm. and that they, they really encouraged them to check in on her. Right. And you called repetitively every time yes. you went to the home and you did not see her. You kept calling. You kept insisting yes. that that they look into that. You knew in your mother's gut that something was had gone horribly wrong. Yes. And you ended up being right. Um, and she was found dead. And that is when the story begins to turn in a in another completely unexpected direction, where mom ends up in prison um, for her for her death, and you end up in this incredible relationship with with mom. And so when I think about oh, when I think about fierce and lovely Deborah, and and what you have learned through this story and through walking with God through it. Um, I, I'm just in awe and I'm just so curious how, how did you begin a relationship with her um, on that side of the, of the story? Um, how did you find your fierce and lovely uh, to be stretched <laughs> in those conversations. Uh, what did that look like for you? Well, of myself, and I guess you could say in my own flesh, um, you know, I I didn't really want any part of her. I I was so hurt and so devastated, and and I was so angry at her because I had asked her a few times if this particular child might stay with us for a while um, until she got on her feet and. Um, since since uh, there was such friction there between the two of them. And she denied me twice of uh, being able to do that. So I was really very angry as well because it could this could have been avoided, you know. Um, and for whatever her reasons were doing what she did, um, it could have all been avoided. And, and yet, again, my hands were tied. So I would go to visit her cause at her request, and I would listen to her, and I would ask them questions. But I knew I was just simply going there. I was just there in body. I was really I was not there in heart. I did not want to be there. In fact, most times driving to the jail and leaving to go home, I was always sick to my stomach and um, sometimes had to even pull over the side of the road. I was so upset. So it was not of me, and yet I knew I had to keep going back, and I just really felt that God kept calling me back. And so I wasn't going back there, or at least I didn't believe I was going back there for this mother. I was really going back there in obedience and to honor God. I I sort of informed God that, you know, my feelings weren't really matching my obedience here. <laughs> but, uh, um, and I know he knew that. And yet I sensed that he had some purpose and some plan in it. I just couldn't see what it could be. I, I, I could not see where any good could have come from me going and visiting this mother. So I really wrestled with that, with my flesh and my spirit between the two every time I went. When and, and how did you begin to see perhaps some of the underlying purpose for why he was asking that obedience from you? I, be, I think I began to, to see that on the second visit, I believe it was to her when 
she asked me a question um, and I was sort of surprised, but she asked me, she looked me right in the eye and said, there's no forgiveness for what I've done, is there? And I looked at her and I said, from whom? Who, who is it you're talking about to receive forgiveness? And she said, God. And I think it was one of the toughest times I had to be honest with her. <laughs> you know, um, I, I again, of myself, I would have wanted to have said, no, there's not. Uh, but I knew that wasn't true. There is forgiveness for even murder. And I had to speak the truth to her. And I've committed to speak the truth in my life. And I, I had to tell her the truth. There is forgiveness. And then I needed to go on. And that's when I began, I think, to see, you know, some of what the Lord was doing, that that this woman maybe needed to really know about the Lord and needed to know his forgiveness, not only in this case, but forgiveness for her whole life, forgiveness for every sin that she has committed, forgiveness for um, every wrong that she has done. And without her prompting, I knew it was God prompting me. And I said, do you want to know how to receive that forgiveness? And she said, yes, I do. And I could see a seriousness in her eyes. And I could see a very tired, that tired look of that she was tired of living a lie, living a lie for the past year of the death of her daughter and living the lifestyle and the lie that she had lived for many years, that she was very tired. I, I, I sense that that's what God was calling me to do, was to be able to share him with her. Uh, though, again, it wasn't that my heart was tender at that time for her. But again, it was mostly out of obedience. And that's, But that's when I, I think God started to work on me as well. And then from that point on, from visit after visit, we began to talk more about forgiveness, about love, about um, even if this child one day would be able to forgive her. These things were became important to her. And so I began to see more and more the importance of why God was using me in her life. Mm. Well, I think what I found to be so beautiful and um, God's humor in all of this is, you know, through, I imagine through visiting her over and over in prison, becoming comfortable in that in that place, in a space like that. I know you had already been a chaplain at that point. You end up working in a women's prison um, as a, as a sheriff. I mean, as one of the officers and uh, I was just trying to picture you (laughs) and, and the voice that I had come to know through your writing. I was trying to picture the woman behind that voice in a women's prison. And that's again, what I was seeing, Deborah, I was seeing this fierce, woman who who had just joined God to come against um, injustice and just how you had embraced 140 foster children to, to care for them and um, and then faithfully gone and visited this this woman who had committed a crime and just all of that and then the way that you brought such dignity to the women and hum- humanized them in the way that you interacted with them compared to some of the other guards that you described and I think that's lovely just taking this that space that you're in and bringing forth life and beauty in the way that you treat others and uh, I just love that part of your story that um, 
that you ended up in that space. And it seemed like such a neat culmination of all of the, the experiences that you had had prior. Do you want to share any just stories with us about that time when you were working in the women's prison? Well, that was such an interesting time. In fact, if people ask me today, because we had moved to Arizona for five years, and then we moved back to Wyoming. But people say, is there anything you miss in Arizona? And I always tell them, yes, the jail. <laughs> because I loved it there. I loved working there. I loved working with uh, the, the inmates there. And, um, you know, it gave me opportunity really to love them, you know, where a lot of the officers, uh, the women would, would just grumble that this was a job and they were over maybe 130 to 150 women in a dorm by themselves all day. And they would just sort of put up with them. To me, I rejoiced in it. I would go there and think, I have an audience of 130 to 150 women all to myself for eight hours in a dorm. And it gave me opportunity to, to talk to them and to really convince them, you know, what they're doing in life and why they're in jail or prison. This isn't what God's called them to do. And to encourage them to think about what possibly could God call them to do in their life that would not um, include being behind bars and we wearing black and white stripes. I, I had opportunity to get them to think. I would pray over these uh, rows and rows of bunks bed, bunk beds every morning. And I had inmates one time say to me, we see you, you stand at the end and you do something and you tell us to be quiet, but we don't know what you're doing. Are you just trying to catch somebody at doing something? And I said, no, I'm actually praying for all of you. And I had a couple of the inmates when I told them that just break down and cry. Oh. And I began, you know, God was showing me that there's, there are broken hearts, there are tender hearts, there are deceived hearts, you know, in these women in jail. And uh, he gave me opportunity to, in a sense, come alongside them, even though I wore a badge and army boots and they wore black and white stripes. Um, I would remind them we still are women. And God created us for special purposes and just try to encourage them to imagine themselves doing something great for God and something great in their life other than what they had been choosing to do that landed them in jail. Wow. So it was a great experience. And uh, I really fell in love with just many, many of these women that were in prison. That's so true. We're just all women. And we're all sinful women too, right? And yes, yes, some of us yes. have, have done more outward external things that that we end up in jail, but um, we're all humans. Oh, Well, one last question for you, Deborah. For, for those of us who have had to hold on to severe injustice, um, maybe not to the extent of what you experienced with the judge sending these kids back home or this beloved child um, being killed, but something that feels absolutely wrong and unfair and almost unbearable, what would you say to us? You know, there's so many things that I believe they're in our world that are unfair and unjust. And, and so, and sometimes they're natural events. You know, there's not even a person to blame. You know, you can't just point the finger at some criminal or some bad guy. Um, and so there's so many things that are in this life that are unjust. And yet we serve a God that is just. And so I have learned, at least just for myself, I have to really learn how to separate the two. I have to learn that, you know, in the things of this world, just like in Romans, you know, God says the things of this world are not even even comparable to the glory that we're going to see when we're in heaven. And I hang on to that. 
And by hanging on to that, I get little glimpses of heaven here on earth because the Lord lifts me up and out of places of resentment and of bitterness that I could have fallen deep into. And he gives me a, a, a platform to stand on. And he says, you know, you're in my hand and no man can pluck you out. And I've learned even myself, I can't even pluck me out. So, you know, when there's resentment and bitterness and unfairness in the world, it will be there. It's a given. It is part of this life. But God gives us a way out of it. And he gives us a way out, not just once we die, but by seeking him, seeking his peace, seeking his comfort, seeking his heart, we can step out and above and beyond it. And then we can be used by him and not drowned in it. Hmm. Yes. Amen. Thank you, Deborah, for um, being on the show today and sharing sharing a little bit more about your story. And my prayers are with you and your family um, grieving the loss of your grandchild. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Here's what I take away from a conversation with a woman who has a story like Deborah Murkey's. You know, we don't all have such severe examples of facing injustice, facing things that are absolutely horrific and wrong, and still having to find God in the midst of that. But we all have our stories of injustice. We all hold things that feel absolutely wrong and unfair and not right. And like Deborah said, that is the reality of the world we live in. And I know that it's my reality right now. I'm holding on to three things that I can think of off the top of my head that feel so wrong and so unfair. And my go-to response is anger. I don't know what yours is. Um, But I I just am encouraged by Deborah's story that through prayer, through faithfulness, through obedience, even when it didn't feel like anything she wanted to do, she got in that car and she drove to the jail and she faced the murderer of a child she had come to love. And if she can do something like that, then you bet I can face what I am facing right now. And I think that is the picture of fierce and lovely. And as I consider intentionally raising my own children, my my teen daughters right now who are still in the house with us, and I think about all the things that they face on a weekly basis, all of the the wrongs that they are having to to suffer, this is the message that I want to share with them. And I want to encourage all of you who have young girls, uh, teens and, and tweens, young sons as well, that this is what we hold as fierce and lovely women. We hold that tension. And as we are pursuing the intersection of the world's greatest pain, and we're looking for examples of the world's deepest hope, we find them in stories like Deborah and stories like yours. And I would love to invite you to share some of your story in our Facebook group, Fierce and Lovely Podcast, or on Instagram at Fierce Lovely. I love to find out where you are finding that intersection in your own life or in the life of a daughter that you are raising. I so appreciate you listeners, and I so love meeting you here in this space each week. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.